0: You are listening to National Security Law
1: Today. All right, September 11th of 2001 seems like the date when America woke up to the threat of violent terrorist attacks from afar. But domestic terrorism was actually a thing long before that time. In this episode, we're going to take you back to a nearly forgotten domestic terrorism event March 9th of 1977, it was a sunny day in Washington, D.C. It was 46 degrees in the nation's capital. That morning, a group of well-trained men stormed three important buildings in Washington, D.C., taking over 100 people hostage. The group were the Hanafi Muslims, and their history is shocking. And the hostage negotiators included the ambassador of Iran, The ambassador of, wait for it, Pakistan. No, your earbuds have not just failed. And the ambassador of Egypt. The press covered it all live, before
0: social media streaming, cell phones or the internet, with cameras rolling, correspondents in the line of fire, and in one case, paying for it with their lives. This is the story of the Hanafi Muslim siege of an august Jewish organization, a Muslim institution, and a government building, all in the name of Islam. But to the dismay of Muslim leaders who stepped up to intervene and educate the hostage takers and end a scene that could have resulted in the deaths of hundreds of innocent civilians
1: instead of just two people. Welcome to this special episode of National Security Law Today, the podcast of the ABA Standing Committee on Law and National Security where we explore the Hanafi Muslim Siege of 1977. And our guests today are, we'll start with the first one, Mark Tui, now a partner at Baker Hostetler, but then an assistant United States attorney in the District of Columbia. And Mark's very impressive biography will be linked in the notes to our show, Um, But he was also special counsel to the U.S. Attorney General and the first director of the mayor of Washington, D.C.'s Office of Legal Counsel. Mark, I'm so glad you came in today, and we're delighted to have you here, genuinely. Glad to be here. And we're lucky to have a local reporter on the line, Pat Collins, who was then a reporter for the... Well, when the
2: murder happened, I was at the Washington Daily News, the murder at the Navi House. When the takeover happened, I was uh, in television. I worked for Channel Nine, WTOP.
1: And my understanding is that Pat, and I hear this from a lot of people, Pat, that you were covering this twenty four seven throughout the period of the siege. Is that right?
2: That's correct. Uh, you know, live trucks just became uh, sort of uh, in vogue back then. TV live trucks. So you, well, they don't even use live trucks anymore. They go live with these uh, these little devices. Um, these. Uh, Live View machines now that are about the size of a, oh, uh, maybe a small VCR. But back then, and even today, we had those big live trucks that have masts that go 65 feet in the air. And it was a big novelty in television because we just sort of got them and we started to use them. And I spent uh, the night in a live truck sitting outside the mosque during the whole siege. We were on the air, you know. Cover to cover, you know, daylight to uh, to uh, sunset. Wow. you know, covering this thing, and I would sleep in the live truck, and then somebody would wake me up, and I'd go over and look, and you could see is there any movement? Is there anything going on? I'd do a <laughs> live report, and then they'd go to somebody else down at the Benny Breth or somebody else at the district building. But it was nonstop coverage throughout well, the whole siege.
1: Let's talk about this. I want to orient our listeners, many of whom are young and have no idea this happened. Sometimes, they were probably born after this happened, but they've heard of al-Qaeda, and they've heard of all these self-radicalized ISIS mm-hmm. followers. But um, Mark, let me start with you. Who were the Hanafi Muslims?
3: The Hanafi sect of the Muslim faith uh, was... I I don't know that it originated uh, with uh, its leader, Malcolm X, but it certainly came to life in America under the leadership of Malcolm X, who led the split from Wallace Muhammad in the Nation of Islam uh, some years before. Hamas Al Dukalis, born Ernest Timothy McGee, in Gary, Indiana, in the 19 uh, late 30s, early 40s, um, ended up in New York uh, in the 60s and became a disciple and a follower of um, the Hanafi sacked under Malcolm X. And was very devoted to Malcolm X. Malcolm X was murdered by a group of black Muslims in Harlem in 19, I believe it was 68 so um, And that began that began, a very strong disaffection uh, between not just the Hanafi Muslim sect in general, but in specific uh, Hamas al House. And he came to Washington um, in the late '60s, early '70s, uh, and the home on 16th Street Northwest, at the corner of Juniper, uh, right around the corner from my home, uh he set up shop there, and um, life went on without any particular notice until that fateful day in 1972, I
1: believe. Let, yes, Mark, that was, let, let's say, I think one of the the things that we're all asking ourselves right now is when we see these young guys getting rat, like, what happened in their lives to make them turn to violence and I mean, what happened well, to this guy? This was so dramatic. As, as my
3: colleagues, the late Bob Shuker and Terry Russell and Hank Schulke and John um, um, Evans, who prosecuted the murders, uh, learned there was a growing, not only disaffection, but a growing hate of Collis and his group uh, out of the Nation of Islam in, in Chicago, my recollection is the, the the six five or six men that were sent to murder the Collis. That was the, he was the target. Collis um, were from were from Philadelphia, in a in a sect in Philadelphia, out of uh, Chicago, and they planned it. This was not you know, incidental. This was not on the whim. They, this was planned. The only thing they missed was Collis. Their People, target. The target. Collis and his wife Kadija were shopping food shopping. And they came back in the afternoon, and he pulled into the driveway. Uh, there, was a, there was a body laying on the porch. Um, somebody ran out of the porch, two of them ran on the porch and ran across 16th Street, and Evan Collis was in shock. And into the house he went, and he saw a scene you would never want to see with your family.
1: This is a, I don't want to get into the details because it's so grisly. I mean, it was shocking, but we're talking about the murder of infants and children. Yes, yes. Multiples, and as I understand it from reading the opinion, the, which we'll hyperlink, we're talking about ten people were murdered. This was a mass murder.
2: It was. It was almost biblical in the sense that they wanted to kill the leader and then kill off all of his descendants so he could wipe out the whole Anafi sect. Now,
1: I also understand that this house functioned as a mosque. So not only was it biblical, but my understanding is that they held services here. They did. uh, That um, detectives interacting with Hamas afterwards, that was his first name. Uh, I know we think of Hamas today as being the the group out of, um, you know, the the territories. In Gaza. In Gaza. But um, that was his name, and that the detectives, who were white Irishmen from upper northeast D.C., Uh, would treat this, um, you know, black Muslim Hanafi sect member with tremendous respect that they entered the home uh, without their shoes on to show respect uh, for him.
3: Well, Joe O'Brien, who Pat remembers well, um, Joe O'Brien was one of the greatest homicide detectives I've ever met. And I tried a lot of murder cases when I was an assistant U.S. attorney and worked with Joe. He was not only a great cop, a great manager and a leader, but he had a great sensitivity and he developed he and a couple of his senior detectives developed a bond immediately with Hamas and with his wife Khadija and that as it turned out, that bore a lot of fruit once the takeover occurred a few years later because they were trusted they were trusted um, and so they bonded you're quite right they bonded.
1: Okay, so um, so uh, this murder was investigated, and this mass murder was investigated. Pat, did you cover it?
2: Oh, yes. I was at the Daily News at the time. My recollection is that I think one of the killers dropped a gun. You're right. And I think uh, some of the killers, they had police records, and because they had police records, they had prints on file. And because the gun had prints on it, that led the cops in DC to Philadelphia and once they identified one of the shooters it led them to the others finally to this whole group that came out of Philadelphia and like dominoes the whole case came together but not to the satisfaction of Hamas that's he a wanted great point more.
1: these people went to prison they were all convicted no one was acquitted in any meaningful way right mark yeah.
3: One one of the defendants, I think, was tried in a separate case, and there was something, some charges were dismissed. Uh, There may have been an acquittal of one of them, um, but for the most part, no, they went to jail for very long sentences. Uh, But as Pat said, that was the beginning
2: of a fire that developed in his belly. Oh, that that hurt festered inside Hamas Abdul-Khaliz for years, and I'm convinced... He conjured up a plot because he wanted revenge. He wanted his justice, his way. And that's why the siege all started.
1: But years went by. And let, let's talk about sort of, let's put this in a, a modern context. One of the more fascinating things that I noticed when I read the opinion, because we, we've seen this recently with other terrorism cases, is one of the triggers for the timing of the siege, which took place years after the murder... Was the fact that there was a film coming out that somehow it seemed to them haram and disrespectful, as they say? How did so.
3: the messenger? Um, the Metropolitan Police Department, the leadership of the homicide squad, stayed in touch and were there as resources. He had he really hid this very effectively. There was a point in before the in the months before um, the uh, members of his group many of whom, or most of whom were cab drivers and Silver Spring, would work out in the evening on the front lawn doing calisthenics. And again, it was a workout. I mean, it didn't raise the specter in anybody's mind of something's coming. It's just they were working out at night. Uh, But they were were working out for a reason. When you see, which we'll get to in a little bit, when you see what they took up eight floors to... uh, the top floor of Menegrith, when you see what they took into the district building, um, they had to be in very, very good shape. The weaponry was astounding. It was like a war uh, zone. And so, um, this was planned. And it was planned, despite the rage,
2: it was planned and it wasn't obvious. The one thing I remember, and I do remember the stories about this crew uh, of men working out, but I also remember he had a guy marching back and forth in front of that house. And I think he had a sword. I think he had a saber or a sword. I think you're right. And it almost reminded me of medieval times. He had a guard stationed back and forth in front of the house. The sentry. Right, to sort of protect it, to keep someone from... Coming and attacking again, and we all said that is very strange and odd. I mean, no one was really threatened by it. It was a sword. It was a guy marching back and forth, but, but, but it was on Sixteenth Street. Pat's right. Uh, the sense was
3: he's preventing, trying to prevent a no, second attack. He wants. He, he, this is a signal. We're, we're here, um, and you come to uh, you come after us. We're going to get you.
2: And and the other that was thing, the sense of it. The other thing is is that Hamas had relationships with some of the big anchor, TV anchors in town. Jim Vance, Max Robinson, mm-hmm. he had talked to them. They knew him. He had their numbers. He would call them, and that paid off for us later on after the siege because Hamas knew the value of television, and he would call in and make his demands on television to Max Robinson or, or right. to call Vance, and but he had a relationship there. Paid off for him, right, and in we'll a way.
1: we'll add some hyperlinks. These these two men, in particular, Max Robinson, I guess, and obviously Jim Vance is a longtime anchor. But these are sort of iconic. I think um, local anchors and, mm-hmm. and, and correspondents. I think Max was also, if I'm not mistaken.
0: So, um, starting first thing in the morning, what happened on March 9th, 1977?
2: Well. Not to sound like dragnet, but it was day like any other day, <laughs> and you know we were out and about too. Now you have to remember the time. There are no cell phones. There is no internet. We communicated by radio, two-way radio. The police they communicated by two-way radio. Our kid, our grandchildren don't even play with two-way radios today. I mean, they have iPhones. But that's how primitive it was in people talking to one another through emergencies in the city. And, yes, we did listen to police calls. Everybody listened to police calls (laughs) to find out what was going on. So as we're going through the day, um, we had a very good police reporter, Mike Buchanan, at Channel 9. And he heard some calls going to the Britt. Buchanan called some of his sources they told him to get down,
1: down. Let's let's talk for just a second. What the heck is a Bernay Breth? What's the significance of that? And where was this? How big an institution are we toli- talking Brene about? Brene is a
3: Jewish services organization that's worldwide. Provides wonderful services to people of the Jewish faith and others. He blamed he Hamas. He blamed the Jewish people without any rational basis. He blamed the district government for not doing enough uh, to support the tragedy of his family. And he, and, and, uh, and he also blamed the Jewish people because of the movie, which had Jewish producers. It was just, it made no sense, but but the most damage was done at B'nai B'rith.
1: So this was a big, this is an office building, Great right? Stories. And hundreds of people worked there. Hundreds. Right. And this is in what is, I guess we would call this Midtown, uh, Washington? Yeah, Midtown. Oh, right,
2: in the heart of the city. And there's a, By the way, there's a there's a hotel right across the street. Uh, I think Holiday Inn at the time. So Buchanan, our reporter, pretty smart guy, booked a room in the hotel right away. Right away, first time before he's, all he's the in, other. Well, along with a number of cops who were sitting up <laughs> s- staging areas in that hotel. So we had Buchanan and the cops sitting there trying to figure out what to do. Well, I was there with the mobile crimes uh, team
3: uh, at midnight, looking through a telescope into the slits in the eighth they, they 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 took over the building they rushed the building and they, how
1: how many people these are we're talking about Hamas's trained soldiers uh, are, there were
3: uh, let's see three uh, six seven seven and two at the Islamic center um,
1: so seven seven people and uh, let me let me uh, they also they threw furniture into the stairwells well first first thing i did yeah.
3: is they they collected everyone You know, they had guns and rifles and shotguns and shooting stars and garattis, you name it. Uh, And 15,000 rounds of ammunition. I can tell you from my experience in the Army during the war, they didn't have 15,000 rounds of ammunition every couple of days at Khe And I'm telling you, this is a lot of ammunition. So they they herded people up to the 8th floor. uh, Hurt a number of people who didn't move fast enough. Sliced one guy's ear off, sliced an arm off, a hand off, terrorized these folks. Took them upstairs, and then everything came up. They painted over the windows on the eighth floor. It's a large conference room area, uh, so you couldn't see in. But there were slits in the in the uh, attempt to paint. And through a high-powered MPD telescope, when I was up there at 11 o'clock that night, you looked through the telescope and you saw people being bitten, beaten.
1: Dear God. And we're not all... To, these were not all young people, right? These Some of these people were older working in yes. Brenebriks. Some were very old. Um. And again,
2: let's remember where this happened. This is 1977. I mean, we didn't have any strategy plans with police departments on how to handle this sort of thing. This is, this is something brand new to the city. It was brand new pretty much to our country. Yep. What are you going to do? And how are we going to deal with these people? It was... It was fresh right out in front of everyone, all of this violence. And they had to make some very hard decisions on what to do. And fortunately, I think they made the right ones.
1: So so let's move on. So first, they they take over Renee Britt. First
2: took over the district building.
1: First took over. Let's let's back up. So we, we know the district building is a municipal building located down in what is now known as Freedom Plaza.
3: The Wilson Building on Pennsylvania Avenue between 13th and 14th. Yes. And this
1: is a large municipal building, and among the people serving there at the time as councilman was? Marion Berry, who got wounded. Yes. He, he
2: caught a, uh, a shotgun pellet to the chest. And uh, we have pictures of him being carted out of the district building, lifted out through a window, I think, on the first floor. And one of the police officers who helped him out was a guy by the name of Ike Fullwood. Yep. And when Barry became mayor, he made chief. Ike Fullwood chief. Yeah.
1: Okay, so they took over the district well, they, first. Well, they, they
2: stormed the district building, and they immediately went
3: to the fifth floor. On the fifth floor of the district building in those days, at the um, southern end, was the mayor's office. Walter Washington was the mayor. At the far end on the... On the uh, western side was the city council chair, Sterling Tucker. His office. I think they thought they were going for the mayor's office. They went into the, they went into the wrong office. They went to Sterling Tucker's office, um, and there were oh, there were a dozen people or so more in the office, and they they immediately um, put people on the floor. They tied them tied a bunch of them up in chairs, and um, although it happened a little later. Uh, when the SWAT team showed up um, when they showed up and they put a barrier down about 15 feet uh, gunfire was exchanged fortunately no hostages were hit but the all of the windows were blown out so that after that initial exchange of fire you could see into the office and there were five or six hostages tied up rope tied to chairs uh, with guns to their heads and the if you if you want to pursue this any further, we're going to start killing people.
1: Okay, so they so they take before you guys are really even aware. So they take over district building. They take over Bernard Breth
3: in the Islamic Center. And,
1: and let's talk about that. This is this is a very famous mosque it on is. Massachusetts Avenue, and they've had famous imams. One who uh, much later was sort of characterized as the Ground Zero mo- uh, Imam. This is a place that feeds the homeless, consistent with Quranic mandate. Just like Bernay Birth is a Jewish organization, does all sorts of outreach and kindness. Of, this was a, a place where people go to worship. Um, so, this is a, I mean, this is a Muslim institution. And these guys are Muslim.
3: It was curious the selection. My recollection is, and Pat, you may have a better recollection of this. I think they somehow identified this building with the Nation of Islam. Somehow, is a, as a that one, yeah. Hmm. And Yet it wasn't. It's a very, it's a very uh, uh, credible and holy place for uh, for people of the Muslim faith.
2: And I think, well, I think the the takeover at the mosque was different in temperament uh, yeah, it was. than the other two locations. It, I, I would, I'd hesitate to call it a gentle takeover, but there was no real violence no, that wasn't. I was aware of at the mosque. They just wanted it. It was a peace. Of real estate they wanted to seize I think symbolic more than anything else Me too. I should also point out that when they took over the district building uh, a young reporter Maurice Williams who worked, worked for WHUR was getting off the elevator and he was shot and killed L- let's find WHUR
1: w- is a Howard University, University radio go, station right. a public radio station that exists even today and that was
2: the
3: basis of the felony murder charge Against Hamas and the people in the district building. But another, there was another death. Um, Mac Williams was a special police officer who was stationed on the fifth floor of the district building. He's lucky he wasn't shot, um, but he had a heart attack and he lay he died. Uh, and died later. Later. So he was not. They, the murder was not uh, pinned. They couldn't connect it in that way. But they, they they moved very quickly. At the time that they moved into the district building. Uh, I was um, beginning my closing argument in a murder case in front of Judge Nunzio, who later was named to try the case. And I said, ladies and gentlemen of the jury, and boom, (laughs) the back door of the courtroom, four marshals barge into the courtroom. They grab the judge. Come with us, judge. They literally drag the judge off the bench. Two other marshals took the jury and said, let's go with us. And Frank Carter, the public defender, is very good trial lawyer. and uh, and I are sitting there. And the expression, of course, was uh, I probably probably the expression was WTF. <laughs> you know <laughs> what happened? What's going on? <laughs> and uh, one of the marshals came back in, and he said, "The city is being taken over by terrorists." And so I left the courtroom. I may have gone back to my office, but then I got called, you know, we went over to the U.S. Attorney's Office, Earl Silver, And, of course, at this point, nobody knew what was happening exactly. It was happening so fast. Um, The communication between Hamas and the folks at the district building was, of course, by the telephones in that building. So Charlie Harkins, my colleague in the U.S. Attorney's Office, under Earl's Direction immediately got a T3 warrant authorized.
1: Okay, and that's a traditional criminal wiretap for our nerdy law student listeners that we love. It is
3: a wiretap, you bet. Because, <laughs> because the point was, we have to find out if there are other, any other means of communication, number one. And number two, we want to take these conversations because this is obviously a joint effort. It's a conspiracy. It's a it's joint conduct. And if we're going to charge people in a conspiracy, we've got to find out who's talking to who. Right. So, T with T three Charlie did a great job set it up, and there was there was there was a, a person on that phone until the takeover was completed. So again,
2: think about this, okay? Pennsylvania Avenue, the District Building, Rhode Island Avenue, the Penang Bridge, Massachusetts Avenue, Embassy Row. This city came to a standstill. Absolute standstill. Now the cops at first didn't know what was going on. We didn't know what was going on, but they did what cops do. They closed everything down. Sure, you sure. couldn't get from here to there. And, and they said, keep it close until we figure out what the hell's going on. And the key yeah. to figuring it out, because the guy who figured it out right away,
3: as soon as you could, was um, the commander of the Homicide Squad.
1: And that was Joel Bryan.
3: Joel Bryan, and with colonnading, with the chief. I mean, once they knew it was Hamas... Then uh, Cully brought Joe right in the middle of it and said, we've got to work together on this. Um, I don't remember how soon it became apparent, but um, my recollection, Pat, is that Hamas called a radio station to say who, you know, what this is about.
2: Well, there's no doubt he wanted to take credit for what he did, yeah. and he wanted people to know why he was doing it, and he had these demands. You know? He wanted those killers uh, of the, his family Release to the him. Well, These are
1: convicted people serving a prison term, and he right. wants them to be turned over so he can he assassinate them. He wanted them turned
2: over uh, to B'nai B'rith and then kill them all, eye for eye, eye for eye. Yeah. He wanted that movie. He wanted it shut down.
1: Now I understand that movie. Did they did shut that down? Yep, they did. somehow Cullinane got with the Motion Picture Association yep. of America, and they pulled that film to give him one of his concessions. Uh, and yep. what were the what were the other demands though? These were wild, crazy demands. <sighs>
3: In terms of the people of, the, of Jewish faith, uh, focusing on B'nai B'rith, um, he wanted some kind of recompense. It was unclear exactly what it was. He wanted some kind
2: of recompense for the deaths of, these, uh, of his family. But it was wild and woolly. He would call up the TV station. He'd talk to Max. He'd go on these rants, on and on and on. And that's how we knew what was going on. He was very vocal, very public. Very scary.
3: It was very scary because it was very clear that he had absolute mind control over these colleagues of his.
1: Well, this is an important feature of this story because right now we are all living in... I mean, I think reasonable people are all in a state of dismay about young people right now who fall under the spell and get brainwashed by, you know, Baghdadi or, you know, earlier Alaki or, you know, even... Even Osama Bin Laden, how do these people get so crazy? And here it is at the, at the micro level, he's able to assemble an army, and these people actually have jobs and lives, and they're cab drivers.
3: But their focus was over the period of how many months, um, was indoctrination, and they bought it hook, line, and sinker. In fact, one of his one of his uh, men was in the West Point training school in order to become a plebe at West Point, and and it was down in Virginia. And he sent out the alert to this guy, we're ready to go. He'd been coming back and forth on weekends. He sent the alert out, and this guy immediately got to Washington. The rest, I think, were already here. And then it all congealed about, uh, as I said to the jury in the opening statement, I looked up at the clock and I said, It's about eight minutes after ten. Ninety days ago, at eight minutes after ten, the greatest terror incident in modern times in Washington occurred. So, yeah, just after ten.
1: So, um, let me just take a second here because I have this is an unbelievable story and yet so true. Um, during this time, one of the things is you're talking about monitoring police communications. The siege went on for what over twenty four hours. Thirty six. Right? You're covering it, Pat, wall-to-wall. You're listening to police communications, I can only imagine, during this time. And at some point, somebody tried to rescue hostages.
3: A radio reporter went live reporting there were people on the roof, troopers on the
2: roof, ready to, uh, to descend and, and do something. Yeah. And so I so think you're blaming they're... the
1: radio guys, is that what you're saying?
2: I'll blame the radio guy. <laughs>
3: <laughs> and, and Hamas is listening to the radio. Yeah. And watching. He's calling he's in the radio. So Hamas picks radio. up the phone and says, "These guys enter one inch below that roof. I'm killing every hostage." And we're
1: talking about 140 hostages.
3: No, Justin. this was a, this was district building. At the he was district gonna, he was building. Gonna, okay. Well, he may have killed them at Benadir too. I'm going to kill the hostages. Uh, and we were, you know, of course, very concerned about all of them, but um, it was clear if if somebody had gotten below the roof, the guys in the district building could well have shot the hostages. They had already, the guys in the district building already um, took a successful life away from a young law student intern by putting a shotgun and putting uh, two rounds into his back. He's now in a wheelchair for the rest of his life. He had been in a wheelchair since then. Um, And um, a couple of other people got smacked around. And then at the B'nai B'rith, well, they were smacking people around. Nobody got killed, but they thought, this house just thought, and when we interviewed them and prepared them for trial, they all thought,
2: um, we're not going to get out of here. You don't carry thousands and thousands of rounds of ammunition into a building just to threaten someone. I mean, they were on the edge of a slaughter for that 38 hours unless they did something bold. And I think Conane I think did something Well, let's, before we
1: get to Cullinane, because that is an amazing story of uncompared uh, heroism. Into this fray, we suddenly have ambassadors from countries that we modernly understand to be hostile nations. Pakistan, um, Iran, I mean, with sanctions against Iran, we, you know, Pakistan has been, you know, accused over and over again of harboring terrorists, and Egypt. Um, which has sometimes been our friend and sometimes not so much. Well, well,
3: don't don't forget, um, Ambassador Zahidi from Iran um, was very, very warmly regarded in Washington, especially on the the social circuit, and especially by attractive women. He was very socially...
1: (laughs) This is pre-revolution, let's say. (laughs) Oh, oh, no,
3: he had to leave. But anyway, Zahidi was, and then the ambassador from Pakistan and Cairo, the State Department was, in, was, was uh, Secretary of State got involved in this. The Attorney General got involved. Uh, the Attorney General, of course, was Griffin Bell, a great man. And the White House got involved in this. It was mobilized in a way that the ambassadors were contacted, and they, and they said, we will help. Wow. We will help.
1: Unquestionably, so the, right away. And so, because this is only 24 hours, it's not like they got into a bureaucratic morass. These guys showed up, right?
2: Yeah, but remember, they live in this city. I mean, it's not like this was happening in Cleveland. Okay, this is happening right where they live. Their homes were pretty much on lockdown as well. Yeah. So where did they go? Well, negotiations began
3: pretty quickly after things settled in that first night with led by Colin Ayn, Earl Silbert, Joe O'Brien. Peter uh yeah, Peter Flaherty, who is the deputy attorney general, former mayor of Pittsburgh, was around uh for a short time in, in this. Uh, but it was, it was the law enforcement folks that began, and also Chief Rabb, uh, Bob Rabb, who was the deputy chief of police, was back and forth on the phone for the first, um, certainly the first 12 to 20 hours. Uh, and it was, it was very unclear where this was going to end. As they say, Chief Colin Ayn would tell you he was scared to death. He didn't think they'd get out.
1: So the ambassadors came to the police department? Is that what happened? The, the or was there a, uh, what do they call that, you know, like a staging I'm area? I'm trying to remember.
3: The, the negotiations, it's a good, good question you ask. The, the, there was a staging area. It was GW. It was a facility at GW where they were operating out of. And, and then, but Hamas was still upstairs. So um, I believe the discussions moved over to B'nai B'rith because that's where he was. And the ambassadors were very influential in this in this process because they could identify with the muslim faith but all throughout the first night um, the elevators were used to bring food up for everybody during the during the siege the police brought food up food and water and at least i know that uh, the officers were warned if they're coming up with food, they better, not, they better not be armed because if somebody steps out of the elevator with a gun, they're going to start shooting people. So an unarmed police officer or a police officer took food up, And then O'Brien said, I'm coming up, Hamas. I want to talk to you. And he said, I'm unarmed. And he trusted Joe. And Joe went up and, uh, and he said, the only thing that's going to save this is if those killers are brought to, to me, otherwise everybody goes. I'm not going to surrender.
1: Meaning the people who killed his family years earlier. And either they agree,
3: the movie was secondary. Either they agree to bring these people forward, so I can kill them and give them justice, or I'm going to kill everybody here. Wow. Joe went back downstairs and reported to Cully and Earl. This is bad. We got to start. We got to keep talking to him. We got to keep talking to him. And that may be. That may have been when the. Idea first arose. What about getting Muslim ambassadors here? Will that work? And it did. I mean, it took a a period of overnight and whatnot. And it was the next, as I recall, Pat. It was yeah, it was the next night at midnight or eleven o'clock when they surrendered. uh, The Hamas Hamas agreed to have his men surrender on the condition that he go home.
1: Literally, home back to the home. He didn't want to go to jail.
3: He just wanted, he wanted to go back home. to his house. And um, ultimately, that that was... The best they could offer was when the, when the uh, decision was made... Um, when the deal was cut, uh, the chief judge was alerted, and the hostages, the Hanafi defendants came downstairs in both buildings, and they were taken into custody, and then the hostages were released... Uh, I rode with the hostages from Renee Brith over to GW, um, where there were a thousand press. There were, th- I mean, they had a thousand, were hundreds of press. And and I had to remind the people, you really shouldn't talk to anybody for two reasons. One, you're, you're in an emotional stage. You may say things that we have to deal with in the trial. And number two, you don't want to get in the middle of this. You want to go home. But the deal was agreed to so long as the chief judge agreed to it. Chief Judge says, "I want everybody here, 6 a.m. court hearing. It's now 11 o'clock at night, 6 a.m. And I'll tell you what happens the next day. But that, so that was done. So Hamas was. I don't think Hamas was released that night. I think he, yeah, he he went with the other, with his with his cohorts, and they went to the. I believe they went to the courthouse jail in the district court." <music>
0: Thank you for listening to National Security Law Today, the podcast from the American Bar Association Standing Committee on Law and National Security. We're going to end this week's episode here, but join us again next week as we continue to discuss the Hanafi Muslim siege, one of the first instances of modern domestic terrorism, with Mark Tuohy and Pat Collins. You can also drop us a note at nationalsecurity@americanbar.org, on our Twitter at aba_natsec, or on our Facebook page. We welcome your feedback. Thank you for listening. We'll see you next time. The views expressed on national security law today have not been approved by the House of Delegates or the Board of Governors of the American Bar Association and accordingly should not be construed as representing ABA policy.